Welcome to Cascade Conversations. Join the team at Cascade Partners and their network of trusted advisors as they work to demystify details, terminology, and strategies in the world of acquisitions, divestitures, and financings. Thanks for joining us for another Cascade Conversation. I'm Raj Katari, Managing Director here at Cascade Partners. And joining me today is my friend Kevin Didio, a partner with Barnes & Thurnborg. And uh, Kevin, it's great to have you here. Really appreciate you spending the time with us to chat a little bit today about letters of intent. Appreciate the opportunity, Raj. Great to be here in your new office. Beautiful. Thank you. So one of the key questions, you know, folks always want to understand is, well, what exactly is a letter of intent? We talk about indications of interest and how do you describe letters of intent or LOIs to your clients? Well, it, it, it is an education process because people use that term, letter of intent or LOI, uh, in a way that um, is, is not a defined term. And it's, it, it is a bit um, uh, fluid in the sense that <clears throat> there are different kinds of letters of intent. And um, I would say, generally speaking, um, we, they come in uh, maybe two or three different flavors. The primary differentiating factor among them oftentimes is, um, is the binding nature of, of the LOI. What's binding, what's not binding. And um, oftentimes we hear at the outset, uh, don't spend too much lawyer time on the LOI. It's all non-binding. Let's just get on with the deal. We want to make sure closing is sooner rather than later. And that's all understandable. And, and uh, we are obviously receptive to those, those comments, but it's it's our job, as well as uh, with the other advisors on the team, to make sure that the client understands what they're signing and what the implications are, not only if the deal does go forward, but if the deal doesn't go forward. So right. uh, we, we, we do spend a lot of time in the education process about uh, about what it is the LOI does and doesn't do. Yeah, it becomes really important, right? We often talk about that, uh, you know, some people are like, oh, we'll, we'll just skip over the LOI, and, and that creates its own set of problems because people don't know what the deal is. So what are you working for? Is what do you and negotiating all that live and in, in process doesn't necessarily create the best the best outcomes. Yeah indeed. And I, we have found um, at times there there are times when, when maybe skipping the LOI does make sense. Um, but it does make the process of getting through and to the definitive agreements more challenging. Um, I think um, one of the uh, things to consider when um, when entering into the LOI is uh, whether or not there's a 2016 case that a lot of, got a lot of people's attention um, out of Delaware um, that uh, the parties need to be very deliberate in understanding whether or not they are entering into a non-binding agreement with some terms that are binding, like exclusivity, and we'll talk more about that, um, confidentiality, things that all the parties can agree upon. Um, but the big question has also uh, come out as to, are the parties also agreeing on a good faith obligation to continue the negotiations? Okay. And, or is it, you know, is there no such obligation to negotiate in good faith? And um, this Delaware case caught everyone's attention because it resulted in a, a couple hundred million dollar um, uh, judgment against the party that no longer wanted to proceed under the LOI because it had a different business situation when it, than when it signed the LOI and uh, it got them sideways. And so um, whether or not the parties have to continue to negotiate in good faith is, is a big question. 
wow, that, that's important and, and uh, drives to, again, what people's intents are in the transaction. And I know, you know, when we've worked together, you've seen from us, right, we like to get to a relatively detailed letter of intent. And, and we often look at it as, this is our maximum point of leverage in the negotiation. Typically, we have multiple parties while we're kind of negotiating a letter of intent to be able to get the best terms and best elements for our clients. But what we often find out is people focus on, hey, let's just focus on the top line. And, and as you know, there's so many other critical points to a deal that this is our best place to flesh those out, especially for shareholders and entrepreneurs that aren't as sophisticated, haven't done as many transactions, so they don't know all the different points that are going to come up. And so we've been huge believers and we've worked together really well in negotiating and hammering those through to get to a really good letter of intent that has a lot of the details, not just around the purchase price, but hey, what's the employment agreement going to look like or what are the non-competition provisions going to be if that's critical uh, for, for a client or even more importantly, if there's rollover equity, so our client's going to continue to own a piece, is what are those provisions? That's right. What are those limitations? Yeah, um, rollover and um, yeah, some of the things that they, that sellers especially like to focus on, of course, are is the purchase price. Well, we also spend time with them, of course, educating, especially you in the, on the finance side, to understand what are the purchase price adjustments and what can that look like. What challenges might we have in setting a peg for the working capital adjustment if there is one? Um, and if it's a seasonal business, for instance, you know, you, you could have a very different set of current assets or current liabilities 30, 60 days after you sign that letter of intent, which would really impact your Absolutely. your purchase price, which is uh, which is why we need you guys to uh, be in there and digging through those financials and, and educating the, uh, the client about that. Uh, RWI is another big thing too that we, we want to make sure that if representation and warranty insurance. Representation and warranty insurance in the deal world these days is is, uh, is a great tool, especially for sellers who are um, sensitive to, as, as all sellers are, to allocation of risk and uh, what that means uh, after the deal closes to them. And so we, we oftentimes spend uh, time up front talking about the opportunity to perhaps obtain uh, reps and warranty insurance uh, to, to, uh, to address that allocation of risk issue. Well, those are two really important points and, and part of it a letter of intent is, you know, working capital is a, is a huge one that often people are not focused on because they're, they're worried about the headline and, and many times sellers aren't sure who's keeping the assets, the receivables and what have you. And so hammering out and figuring out what's that working capital target and how's that going to be determined? What is the overall approach? Getting to final letter of intent can generate significant value either towards a seller or away from a seller. But maybe talk a little bit about rep and warranty insurance. And, and you said it, you know, it's about risk allocation. But, you know, it's, it's become a, a more recent and common tool in the last three to five years, even in lower middle market deals. And, and today I'm hearing even down to, you know, $15 million transaction values, which, you know, we haven't really seen, that rep and warranty insurance can be, can be available. Talk a little bit about why that can help a seller and why it can help a buyer in the transactions that you see and why that's important part of a, a letter of intent. Sure, and that's been our experience too, is that uh, those policies have reached down to even the lower middle market, which uh, typically they were just priced out of those deals. It was too expensive to, uh, to make it happen, but that's not the case anymore. And, um, if if post-closing risk is a very sensitive issue for a particular seller, this is 
a wonderful tool uh, for the parties to consider. And and again, I think if, it, if it's not considered really seriously at the LOI stage, it, it's it's likely not going to get Much done. Because it comes into pricing, comes into into play, um, and who's paying for the policy, uh, those types of things. So, but um, it, it's a it's a it's a wonderful tool to allow sellers to um, not a hundred percent, but um, a, uh, in a in a large percentage. Um, uh, not have to worry after closing about the uh, the liability that may be there uh, for indemnity claim post closing to be brought by by the purchasing party. Um, so, in which case, if there is a policy, it would oftentimes step in, except for some things like fraud and other things, of course, that might get carved out. But um, it's um, it's a wonderful tool to help bridge a deal if there are um, challenges between the parties uh, about risk allocation. Yeah, we've liked it because, as you said, right, one, it, it's going to leave more dollars in the pockets of our clients at closing. So instead of having a 7% or 10% escrow, you know, 6 to 10% these days, all I have to do is typically leave a half a percent of the transaction value, um, and the rest is going to get covered by insurance if there's an indemnity claim. So for, we describe it for our clients as, hey, it puts more money in your pocket at closing, right? It lowers that potential risk profile going forward. But one of the other elements that we've found is it's made it easier to negotiate the purchase agreement. Mm -hmm. um, because right at the end of the day, we're not as worried about yeah. um, where the claims are going to come from. And as you said in your comment, right, the key is if you don't negotiate it in the letter of intent, that's the chance you can get the buyer to pay for it or maybe split costs depending on what yeah. you're able to negotiate. Yeah. And so that's a great tool that we've used at that point to hammer out is it a is it an all indemnity where there is no, you know, there is no sharing of the retention or what's our sharing of the retention and who's paying for the policy? That's right. And it, it's one that we've often described to clients that this can be on the sell side, it can be a great, great tool. And even on the buy side, we've seen it as a good tool mm -hmm. because um, the buyer is going, if there's an indemnity claim, is going to a very objective insurance agency to get paid as opposed to the emotions of a deal going back to a founder or shareholder to make an indemnity claim tends to create a little bit more objectivity mm -hmm. in that in, in that process. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, you bring up a great point about easing some of those negotiations around the representations and warranties made in the definitive agreement. Um, people don't tend to negotiate as hard and, uh, under, with the understanding that there's a backdrop there in place to, to help the risk claim. Um, it's a wonderful tool, and, and yeah, we, uh, we've we used it, and it's 100% of the time we have to make sure it's in the LOI. If it's not, uh, we're, because uh, it does impact closing time as well, because the underwriting More process takes time. Expectations around <clears throat> the party's uh, closing date uh, will be affected um, depending on the complexity of the underwriting, so um, it's become a key component to most letters of intent. So, so what are some of the other key components that you look at when you're looking at a letter of intent, drafting one, or making sure it's up to speed for your clients? You know, there's the obvious purchase price, but you know, you brought up two great ones, working capital and representation of warranty. Are there others that are, that are important to Kevin that says, hey, I try to make sure these type of provisions are in the letter of intent to protect our clients? Sure, yeah, the, the other probably most obvious one is, um, is the structure uh, of, the, of the transaction in question is, um, it is. It does happen. It's fairly unusual in our experience, but it does happen to where the parties agree to to, to punt on on the structure and to say that they'll figure it out and, and to maybe uh, 
work together in good faith to help uh, reach a, also a, a tax favorable result for, for the selling parties. Uh, but you want to try and uh, do your best up front in the LOI to uh, address the structure, whether it's uh, asset sale, stock sale, with or without rollover, maybe it's a merger, um, or different flavors of those, and maybe it's uh, maybe it includes like a Section 338 election too, which could impact things. Um, and so, most of those decisions will impact the tax recognition for 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 the seller, and also set some some tax uh, uh, boundaries for the uh, down the down the road for the buyers. So, structure is definitely one we'd like to uh, make sure is in there because um, everything flows from from it. Right. Um, I would also say that we touched a little bit on earlier, but exclusivity becomes um, a, um, a touchy point. And as these things move uh, from time to time, who, who, who has more leverage in this particular deal? And sometimes that's market driven, sometimes it's deal driven or both. But um, if, if the seller has some real particular leverage, they, um, they, they would like oftentimes not to have to be bound by the exclusivity covenants and uh, be able to have free discussions with others, especially if it's a very competitive transaction. So, um, depending on a particular deal, that that exclusivity that could be that, that that most buyers will certainly want to make sure that they don't have to look over their shoulder right. throughout the next sixty or ninety days and know that all the money they're spending isn't going to be for naught. So, um, th that can be a, a real hot uh, button for the parties. Yeah, we we often look at it as there's a balance of fairness to it, right? At, at yeah. some point, the buyer's going to spend a lot of money. And as long as they live up to the deal you signed up to, you know, everybody should move forward. But that's one of the reasons, and you know, you've seen in our our approach with exclusivity is we're fine with exclusivity at the right point in the transaction. Mm -hmm. At some point, you're almost even in a very competitive process. You've got to have it at some point. But right. Right. one of the provisions that we've often used now is, um, you know, typically they're 30, 60, 90, 120 day exclusivities. We've now put in a provision that basically says, hey. After, if you change a material term of the letter of intent, mm -hmm. then within seven days, we can terminate the exclusivity. Mm. And really, this has been in response to lots of folks retrading yeah. you know, re deals or changing the terms after their indiligence, after yeah. shareholders and founders are getting tired with the process. And um, what I describe is, if there's a legitimate reason you know, the numbers were wrong, or there was an issue, a skeleton in the closet. Every buyer is going to have the same issue, so we're all incentivized to negotiate it and hammer it out. That's why you got that seven-day period to say, you know, we said we did a $10 million in EBITDA. It turns out we only did nine, and the price came down. Well, that's a legitimate reason, sure. and every buyer is going to do that. Our challenge and experience has been oftentimes there is no reason. There is no rationale. It's just, a, well, we feel like we can change it now, and this has been one tool that we've used to protect mm -hmm. our sell side clients from that arbitrary changing the deal, recognizing that, as you know, right, for founders and folks that haven't been through the transaction process, it's an exhausting process. Yeah. Emotionally, time commitment, and oh, let's just deal with it and get buyers of day to day business. Yeah. And buyers will try to take advantage. So it's one that we've used in almost all of ours now to protect uh, to protect our clients. That's good. And what you said earlier yourself is sellers have to be aware of uh, during the process when the LOI is being negotiated, that is their the, the time during which they're going to have their most leverage. And uh, 
if, uh, if they don't take advantage of it, um, it, it can lead to those issues and, uh, and, and get the deal sideways, which no one wants, of course. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a great tool to have. Well, and, and look at, you know, we, we look at the letter of intent, and, and you do. How, how do you use it to set the framework for the negotiations and the, and the deal documentation, right? We're taking that letter of intent and turning it into, you know, a whole set of purchase, parts, purchase documents. How do you guys look at that letter of intent as a, as a guidepost or a resource in those negotiations? Well, ideally, if it's if it's well crafted, um, it, it really does make the process of getting through the initial drafts of the definitive agreements that much more easy. And um, it um, uh, clients who are more sophisticated understand that when you put the hard work in up front, I think with the LOI to get through some of those more um, meaningful terms and conditions about the deal, it makes the rest of those you know, three, four months to get to closing that much more easy. So um, a well-drafted LOI will make drafting that purchase agreement uh, great. And, and it, it also helps the, uh, the relationships among all the professionals on the deal teams on both sides, um, just easier is, is my experience. Uh, the the, the uh, adversarial relationships tend to go, uh, are, are more tempered when everyone has a good understanding upfront about what the expectations are now. Sometimes what you'll oftentimes see in the LOI about customary representations and warranties and customary covenants, those things are a little bit more subjectively defined up front, and you get into some negotiations about those, of course, during the, the, uh, the definitive agreements. But, but generally speaking, um, a, uh, a well-thought-out, drafted, and signed LOI will make the whole deal flow much easier. Even though the provisions are non-binding, right, how, does that, how do you make sure that, you know, Again, someone that might not be as experienced go hold it. They're not binding, mm -hmm. right? How does that how does that then play out in the in the actual purchase agreement and those those negotiations? Yeah, that's that's a great point. Um, and and sellers love to say that up front. Don't worry about it. It's all non-binding. And some of the not not all is, but uh, but even the non-binding things like purchase price, payment of the purchase price, right. the adjustment to the purchase price, which are all non-binding. Oftentimes, um, it sets the expectation, certainly, and um, unless there's some kind of material adverse change or, or some kind of something, something different happens, something comes out of diligence where the parties think that there's now an opportunity to retrade, as you said earlier, on um, whether it's purchase price or something else, um, uh, you the expectations have been set, and um, it's all of our jobs, I think, as professionals on the deal team to educate the client about, it may be about non-binding, however, this does set the expectation and you don't want to, especially if there's maybe a rollover where you're, you're now negotiating with your future partner, um, you don't want to get off on the wrong foot and it, and it certainly, I've seen it happen, as I'm sure you have, and it's, it doesn't make for a great, you know, three, four months, it, it can be um, really challenging to bring folks back to the table. So. Um, we, we like to use those non-binding terms um, uh, with with caution because it certainly does set the expectation and you don't want it to, to uh, get the deal sideways and, and lose the deal, worst case scenario. No, I, th I think your term expectation is the right one, right? I mean, the biggest part of our job is, is setting everybody's expectations up front and clearly like this is what we expect the deal to look like, expect the deal to be if 
everything in diligence matches what, what they expected pre-diligence, right? What, right? what we represented, what the client shared about the business. We got a great business, it's a clean business. Okay, well, when we get into diligence, as long as those expectations are met, everybody should live up to the deal that was defined. And so that becomes, and that was how we've used it as a critical tool. It's like, nothing's changed, so the deal should stay as we described because right. there hasn't been significant enough change. And as you said earlier, right? When those changes happen, oh, we're gonna change the deal structure, or we're gonna, you know, we're gonna go from a stock deal to an asset deal or some other dynamic. It has significant economic impact, the tax consequences, but can also have significant exposure to your liabilities. Again, am I switching from a stock deal to an asset deal? What liabilities am I leaving? What am I assuming? So when everybody's on the same page and sticks to that plan, that gets, as you said, makes the process smoother. And it doesn't mean things won't change, right? If there's something developed, yeah. we all have to be prepared. But I think your, your word of, hey, let's, let's set the expectation right, both with the buyer and the seller, become critical to making sure you can get to that finish line and negotiate that deal in a way that makes, makes sense. That's right. Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And so, you know, we had a lot of discussion about this and, you know, we both have seen where it's been very important to our clients and been, been very successful at using it as a tool to get the best deal and craft the best deal. And it's that expectation, right? But often I hear from my friends, my attorney friends that, oh my gosh, their client came to them and there's a signed LOI, a signed letter of intent already, uh, you know, without the help of their lawyer, without the help of any advisors. And, and, and why do you think that's really detrimental to the client in the end? Yeah, it, it, um, it's, it does happen more often than you'd like it to. That's right. And um, on the rare occasion, you'll, you'll take a look at it and, and it won't be that bad. But um, oftentimes there are certain things you certainly could point out. And you do point out to the client that, you, that could have been negotiated to help position themselves to have a more favorable transaction, maybe it's economics or otherwise. You mentioned non-competes, um, sometimes um, they don't realize what, what's market. And if they just sign it with the understanding and thinking that it's non-binding, I'm not worried about it, we'll negotiate it later, um, that becomes more challenging. So yes, ideally we would love to be um, as close to the front of the negotiations as possible. Even, even you know, in some of these deals, uh, before the LOI gets signed, there's a non-disclosure agreement signed, right. and ideally we'd like to be involved then um, as well because um, it just uh, it, it does make things go more smoothly. I, in my experience, it, uh, some clients are worried that it's just more billable hours, but honestly, I think we could those of us who've been doing it for long enough can explain to a client that it does make for an overall more efficient process the earlier we do get involved, which oftentimes will lead to fewer billable hours, to yeah. be honest with you. So. And, and I would say, you know, not the lawyer, not on a billable hour, it's significantly different, right? Because all of those things that you spent time hammering out um, and negotiating during an LOI, a letter of intent, the, the scope of it, the depth of the language is not as robust as it is in a purchase agreement. So. Yeah. That time spent there figuring it out saves you, you know, a multiple of hours on the back end when you're having to renegotiate a position or, or build the clarity that didn't exist in the letter of intent. So, you know, I, I again, not the person that's doing the billable hours, right, but working in, in tandem with the client and, and the attorneys to get a deal done, spending those few dollars and making that investment up front 
to get a good letter of intent will pay dividends, I think, both in economics, right, and, and the parameters of the deal. You, you talked about some of those, but more importantly, it's going to even save dollars, significant dollars on that negotiations and that documentation back and forth and trying to get the document to meet the expectations. Because if you didn't define the expectations in the letter of intent, then everybody's starting from completely different places. And you're doing that all under billable hours as you try to bring everybody together to get the, the now the expectations to align with reality. Uh, 100%, that's right. And I think the other thing it does that earlier on that professionals are brought in, whether it's uh, the financial advisors, lawyers, accountants, all, the whole deal team, from the sell side perspective, it does a, uh, a good job of sending the right message to the buyer and its team that the seller is taking this seriously. It's putting in the, the time and the resources necessary to do everything it can to make a successful transaction. Buyers don't want to waste their time and money. They want to make sure that they're dealing with the seller who's taking the process seriously um, and is getting the right deal team around them. Yeah, and, and the part of that right deal team is, is having a true M&A attorney, right? Uh, not the company's attorney that they've used for a long time. It might be a trusted advisor, but a real M&A attorney will know what's market terms and yeah. market language. So when you're crafting and negotiating that letter of intent or the purchase agreement, right, that you're negotiating around the things, there's lots of things to be negotiated. That's but focus on those ones that are relevant to the transaction and that aren't the industry standard or the norm, accepted norm. So, so engaging someone like you, Kevin, to help in that process can be a great, great part of that. Well, I appreciate that, Raj. And uh, on the flip side, working with a financial advisor, investment banking firm that uh, has the necessary expertise is just as valuable. Uh, if not more so uh, for certain deals. So um, it, it's it's really a team approach that works best for, for all the parties involved. Absolutely. Well, again, thanks for joining us for another Cascade Conversation. And again, thank you, Kevin, uh, for joining us in this discussion about letters of intent. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.